Welcome to HCMA Off the Record, your behind-the-scenes look and listen into the world of emergency management. This podcast is brought to you by Muriel Bowser, Mayor of Washington, D.C., and the District of Columbia Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. From preparedness tips to intra-agency coordination, to advice from the men and women responsible for protecting the district, HCMA Off the Record shares it all. Whether you're an EM nerd like us or learning about emergency management for the first time, come along for the ride. Good morning and happy Wednesday. Welcome back to HCMA Off the Record. We have an interesting episode lined up today. My name is Margaret. I'm an intelligence analyst with the National Capital Region Threat Intelligence Consortium, DC's Fusion Center here at HCMA. I'm pleased to introduce our guests this afternoon, Eliza from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and Martina from the Human Trafficking Legal Center. Good afternoon, Eliza and Martina. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit more about your organizations and what you both specialize in, please? So my name is Martina Vandenberg, and I run the Human Trafficking Legal Center here in Washington, D.C. And the Human Trafficking Legal Legal Center is an organization that uh, provides pro bono legal assistance to trafficking survivors throughout the United States, but we also do work here in Washington, D.C., in the Washington, D.C. area. We help trafficking survivors with immigration relief, representation in criminal cases when they're witnesses in criminal Mm -hmm. cases, and also representation in civil cases when they want to take the trafficker to court and fight for justice. Great. That's fantastic. Um, My name is Eliza Riach. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I work with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Uh, We started in 1984 with an ongoing mission to find missing children, reduce child sexual exploitation, and prevent future victimization. So um, as an organization, we're not specifically an anti-human trafficking organization, but because of the nature of the types of crime and the children we serve, we're certainly interfacing with populations specifically of child sex trafficking survivors every day. Yeah, and to follow up on that, uh, I've noticed that this issue has come into the spotlight uh, quite recently and within the last few years, Um, although we know it's historically been a pervasive issue. uh, What specifically uh, is trafficking? What are the different kinds, and how can we define it? Again, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, because of the population we serve, tend to focus specifically on child sex trafficking. I think Martina is going to be able to do a good job really talking more of the expansive nature of the problem. Um, But... Generally, as as it relates to sex trafficking, that would be uh, any person that is engaging in a commercial sex act through force, fraud, or coercion, or especially uh, important as it relates to the National Center's response, um, that any child engage in a commercial sex act. So we don't have to uh, prove force, fraud, or coercion for a child to be considered a victim of trafficking uh, under federal laws and most state laws. and those state laws that aren't there, we're hoping to get there soon. Um, As far as why I personally think that that issue has gained more traction recently, one of of them really simply comes down to semantics. Um, Understanding that um, prostitution, especially if a child is involved, doesn't exist, right? That there is no such thing as a child prostitute based on the law that I just defined, but also the harmful nature of exploitation broadly. Um, So when I first started doing this work 15 years ago, I was working in a child prostitution court. 
Um, that term rarely exists anymore because we know that, that, again, child sex trafficking would be the terminology we use. I think that's been really, really helpful as far as engagement. So Eliza is completely right on the sex trafficking definition. So if it's an adult in the commercial sex industry, the government has to show force, fraud, or coercion. If it's a child, there's no force, fraud, or coercion required because children simply can't consent to a commercial sex act. But trafficking, as Eliza pointed out, is much broader than just sex trafficking. And if you look at the global data, um, the International Labor Organization indicates that about three-quarters of the trafficking in forced labor uh, all over the globe is forced labor outside of the sex industry. So we're talking about forced labor in supply chains and forced labor in homes with domestic workers held in servitude. And we're talking about forced labor on construction sites and in factories. And so looking at the federal definition of forced labor, which is the sort of the, the other side of the trafficking coin, the definition of forced labor requires that there be force or coercion that causes a person to engage in labor that they have not consented to do or that they are not being compensated for doing or that they would leave but for the fact that they are facing some sort of coercion. So with any case of forced labor, the question for me is always whether or not this person can leave. And if they right. can't leave, why they can't leave. And I think that's really important to note that uh, we see in the media a lot of cases covering child sex trafficking and sex trafficking. Um, but as you pointed out, the majority of cases are labor trafficking. Um, so that's especially troubling that we're not focusing that attention to that issue. That's so true. And there's one other thing I just want to point out before I sort of hand the baton back to Eliza, who can also address this issue. One of the reasons that child sex trafficking has been in the news so frequently of late is because of a growing realization that children are being criminalized, that, sa that sex trafficking victims, adults and children, are being prosecuted and sent to prison, oftentimes for crimes that their traffickers force them to commit. Right. And so Rihanna and others have brought attention to cases of child sex trafficking victims who have committed crimes and ended up in prison sometimes for life. There was just a huge story on the front page of the Washington Post about a child who was being trafficked, who killed her trafficker, and she's now uh, heading to prison. So I think the, 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 the media on sex trafficking is starting to pay attention to this incredibly damaging system of criminalization that causes sex trafficking victims and also labor trafficking victims who are engaged in illegal forms of labor or are forced to commit crimes that their traffickers you know, desire them to, to commit. But those, it's actually the victims in some case going to prison. Right, and then that's another level of re-victimization, which is very troubling. Thank you for pointing that out. I think that's ex extremely important to point out as well. Did you have anything else you wanted to add to that point? To the point of criminalization and of victims? Um, it's, you know, it's an ongoing challenge for many, many reasons, like Martina mentioned. Um, I think w one that is most challenging from a policy perspective uh, when it relates to children is the tremendous lack of resources, awareness, and funding. So, like I said, 10 years ago, I think we were really, and while, while the, the challenge still exists, especially with adults, to recognize victimization over criminality, or as opposed to, um, along with 
the strategies that um, traffickers put forward to um, purposefully distance themselves from um, punitive action by forcing or coercive, uh, coercive methods for their victims to commit these crimes on their behalf. Um, we also have this issue of if we do not arrest a child for the crime of prostitution, and when I say issue, it, it's the pushback that we often hear from policymakers, then we may not have access to funding to appropriately provide services to that young person. Because the way that our most of our state legislators work or traditionally were formed, and that, that can be really challenging in itself, that they were all formed independently of one another. Absolutely. So trying to navigate those systems can be very tough. But traditionally the idea was abuse or neglect by a parent or guardian. And so a lot of times these young people may not fall into that category. And secondary, again, based on the nature of how we define this crime, a child doesn't have to have an identified trafficker to be considered a victim of trafficking. So if, again, the crime says, okay, then uh, here's the person who committed this crime against the child, A, the child's very unlikely to want to provide that information or even see themselves as a victim. Um, if it hinges on that disclosure or for the parent or guardian to have to be uh, the perpetrator, then that child might not have access to services through traditional funding streams. And so we really have to be creative. It's not an excuse ever to charge a child. I, I think you already said the re-traumatization involved with the juvenile justice and a punitive response is incredibly challenging. But thinking of how can we ensure that as we look to protect and the civil rights of young people to not be charged with crimes because of their own victimization, do we ensure that their safety is also considered and that they can access services in, this, in that way? Absolutely. But, I, th but I, th I think the bottom line here is really that services should not be contingent right. upon involvement in the criminal justice system. 100%. Right? If these, are the, if these are children who need services, the fact that the only way they can get them is by entering the criminal justice system is nothing short of terrifying. It really, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think that really illustrates how complex and how uh, services and law enforcement and all levels of this issue is um, still evolving, clearly, that we still have a long ways to go. Um, and revisiting your point regarding coercion tactics, can you, Eliza, explain a little bit about the different tactics that traffickers use to pull in their victims? Certainly. I think, you know, while there is a variety of types of trafficking and manifestations of trafficking, even within child sex trafficking, um, a common narrative we see is that traffickers target individuals who may already have... Um, certain traits that make them vulnerable. I, I'm trying to step away from the vulnerability language. An a amazing a mentor of mine who is a survivor herself said, I'm so tired of hearing why I'm vulnerable. It's one right. more reason why this is my fault. Mm. So, so, so really looking at targeted. Um, but, but certainly I think the same indicators that, that a child would be likely system involved or um, in poverty are going to be the same things traffickers look like look for, for potential manipulation. Um, and part of that, a, a story that I think um, illustrates that more than I could even list those indicators would be uh, the story of a good friend and mentor, T. Ortiz, who is um, a member of NCMEC's Survivor Advisory Council on these issues. 
um, and has given us permission to, to talk through this a little bit, where she said, you know, I was born into foster care. My mother was absent, my father was in jail, and by the time I was 10, I'd been through 16 or more foster care placements. So again, while many children have really wonderful experiences in foster care, uh, the children that we tend to see that are victimized through child sex trafficking don't have that narrative. And she said, of those placements, over half were abusive. Mm -hmm. So for me, foster care was almost like boot camp. I learned that I could be sexualized as a child, and I learned that my value was tied to a paycheck. So when I met my trafficker when I was 12, there was an incredible amount of violence, and I've had, um, unfortunately, uh, seen some of the extreme violence that uh, was suffered in T's case in particular. Um, but she said, you know, I'd already experienced that, and I'd already kind of had that monetary value assigned to me or being told that was why I was important. So what my trafficker offered me for the first time was this sense of stability that this is a person who's going to do what they say they're doing, that's going to remain consistent. And further, in her case, was literally the first person who ever told her that he loved her. Mm. Further, when she was 14, she was arrested and charged with the crime of prostitution. So what she's learned so far is my parents weren't available or a resource to me. The system isn't something that I can trust. Um, the service that law enforcement wasn't something I could trust. And even the people who saw me at this young age um, walking in and out of hotel rooms, getting in and out of taxis, who didn't think of me as a child to protect, but as something to protect their children from, that all had been failing me already. So, so my trafficker was able to really target that and prey upon this idea of at least there's consistency there. So when we talk about the coercion and why people don't leave, there are so many different ways. Um, I think children especially, though, are, are incredibly susceptible for that idea of love, affection, caretaking. And then there is certainly that level of violence in those cases as well to um, shift and maintain control. And finally, again, I, I can't reaffirm enough in the discussion that, that while there are those tactics to coerce, there are also predators who are exploiting vulnerabilities when it comes to runaway and homeless youth, that a child doesn't have to have a trafficker to be a victim of trafficking. And an adult who is exploiting a child sexually in an expectation is part of a crime of trafficking. Um, so th those would be some of the coercion methods, for sure. I would add, though, that it's important also to look at the forced labor side of this. Absolutely. Because I think in sex trafficking and in labor trafficking, a lot of the coercion is psychological. And so the mythology that we hear is that people are kidnapped. Yes, I was going to point that out. Yes, that misconception. And chained to a radiator and thrown in the back of a car and mm -hmm. whisked off into servitude. The reality is that traffickers are smart. Why kidnap someone and take them kicking and screaming when you can convince them just through psychological coercion that their life is going to be better? and that they should want to go with you. How much easier is that? And so what we see in the labor trafficking context, and I think there are also sort of echoes of this in the sex trafficking mm -hmm. context, is that people are recruited, right? Mm -hmm. In the labor trafficking context, they're frequently recruited for a great job. You will get a fantastic job. Here's a contract. It's all perfectly legal for the foreign-born trafficking survivors. Here's a visa. You can enter the United States legally in many cases. Traffickers are very savvy in how they control 
trafficking victims who are under their power. And so in the labor context, oftentimes, you know, if there's a domestic worker in your house who is completely dependent upon you for everything, and what's more, her visa is tied to you. Mm. You, as that worker, you are now chained to that employer because the minute you run out the door, you're out of status. And then you can be arrested and deported, which is in often cases, in, in many cases, your greatest fear. And so what traffickers do, particularly in the um, coercive labor trafficking context, is they threaten people with deportation. There was one case in, uh, in Philadelphia involving Ukrainian traffickers who brought over men and women from Ukraine. They put them in forced labor, cleaning big box stores in the middle of the night. Mm. And so who was cleaning the Costco? Who was cleaning the Target? Who was cleaning the Walmart? It was actually people held in forced labor from Ukraine. And those individuals knew that if they ran away, the traffickers knew where their families lived back in their village in Ukraine. So, you know, yes, they threatened you with deportation, but often they, they threatened family members back in the country of origin. And in one case, they threatened um, the mother of a trafficking survivor who had run away. They threatened the, the, the grandmother who had the child that this woman had left behind to come to the United States for this great job. They threatened to put that grandchild in into forced prostitution, mm. right? So, so there are many, many ways, and and sometimes they don't involve any physical violence, right? At all. Sometimes it's just all psychological coercion, yeah. where people know they don't have a choice. Absolutely, and I think that's important to point out that the power and control dynamic that we see in domestic violence survivors is very similar to that of uh, trafficking survivors that, like you point out, you don't have to lay a hand on someone in order to um, control them and have that power over them, Um, which again, to your point, is why traffickers are very savvy. Um, So I think it's important to point out that traffickers have a plan they have an agenda um it there's a level of foresight and planning that goes into it um and i think that's really important what you pointed out regarding the um i'm not a vulnerable person i'm being targeted by someone Mm -hmm. and the concept of changing the language around this narrative i think is very important um you know using survivor not victim um People aren't rescued, you know, um, and that language is important to empower people. That's exactly right. And when we look at the survivors that we've worked with, so I've done legal services for trafficking survivors for a long time, <laughs> more than 15 years. And when we sort of look at the people in the group of clients, the ones who can say, I escaped, right? I mm. planned my own escape. I escaped, I called the hotline, I arranged my break break away from that household in the middle of the night, they are so much stronger, mm. right? They are able to recover, but I think in most cases, trafficking survivors have, have organized their own so-called rescue, right? Other people take credit for it. Right, exactly. <laughs> but they basically rescue themselves. Yeah. I have so many thoughts already based on those comments. I just... From semantics, um, certainly, I, I think even further, or to take that a step, a step further, one of the things we talk about is you know, we don't want to move away 
from the term victim often in our work because we want to reinforce the nature of cr the crime and right. the, the protocol connected. But when we're talking about individuals you know, that have experienced this crime or have been victimized by this crime, not only respecting the that you are surviving even during your exploitation and mm. and like Martina said are often you know the one empowered to get yourself out of the situation through some sort of um, re really challenging dynamic again I don't, but also I think why I flubbered there is because at the end of the day also making sure that we don't define that person based on that experience to right. say that yes they are that is a part of who they are and who they're experienced, but that is not them. I, a dear friend of mine talked about the fact that um, she finished a PhD paper on um, the dynamics of trafficking in Minnesota, and when, when it was released, they said, and, and isn't this wonderful that we had this research done in partnership between an um, academic and a survivor, and she said, I had my PhD 10 years longer than the other woman there, but now that I'm a survivor, it's like that's all I can be. Mm. So, so the semantics around this can just get so important and interesting. But I, I did also want to just jump back a second because Martina earlier reminded me of something really important when she said you know, how challenging it is, and, and you mentioned too that our juvenile justice would be thought to be the only option. I think similarly, when I talk about a story like T's or any of those other options, I don't want it to reinforce an idea that we've heard before, especially with LGBT youth and, and trans and non-binary youth in particular, that there is this idea that has been spread around that, that maybe for them, trafficking is a better option, that being exploited in that way would be a better, like, because it's been so hard already. At no point do we put that blame on the child or their experience or what they feel, but I think we as a community can never accept, similar to dom domestic violence, that this outcome of violence against another human being and the exploitation of a child could ever be a solution that we say, okay, well, th then that's mm. going to be our answer. So, so really, if anything, hoping that it would embolden to say, what can we offer instead of what's happening now? So that's also true on the labor trafficking side because... I was talking to an advocate a couple of days ago who said, sometimes law enforcement will say, well, gee, this is terrible, but they're earning more money than they would in their country mm. of origin, right? But that's not the measure, right? Right. The that's measure not acceptable. Is whether that employer in the United States is following U.S. law. And I want to pick up on one other thing that you said, Margaret, because you sort of mentioned that sort of traffickers are, you know, they have a, they have a, they have a plan. Sometimes you can see that in the financial shenanigans that mm. they undertake. So in the forced labor context, for the last 20 years, we've been fighting very hard to have checks on particularly domestic workers who come with diplomats, right? So diplomats in the United States have diplomatic immunity. Obviously in Washington, D.C., we have a huge, huge population of diplomats. They have the ability to bring domestic workers on A3 or G5 visas, special visas reserved just for diplomats, domestic workers, and, and, and domestic workers working for international organization employees. And we have seen cases where the diplomats now know, and the people who work at the World Bank now know, that they have to have bank accounts for those people. Mm -hmm. People have become very savvy about creating a paper trail to make it look as if they're paying. But then on a certain day every month, they take 
now a victim, right? They take mm-hmm. that person to the bank, they have them withdraw all the money, and they have it handed back to them in right. cash. And so the kind of forethought <laughs> required in order to pretend like you're paying someone when you're really not paying someone um, is is highly problematic. And we've seen this happen again and again and again when people are creating a paper record that's actually completely false. Huge thanks to our guests, Martina and Eliza, for joining us on this week's episode for some really great conversations. With so much great information shared, we couldn't fit everything into one episode, so we're excited to air a bonus edition next week with the second half of our conversation with Eliza and Martina. We'll see you then, and thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Muriel Bowser, Mayor of Washington, D.C., and the District of Columbia Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency.